Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate DeMeo. And I'm Karina Longworth. This week, we watched a movie that might have gotten too small for its own good. David Lynch's sci-fi, not exactly epic, Dune. As always, we are going to play a game, and we are going to start by checking in on what we've been watching and otherwise doing to keep us from going bananas. Let's kick things off with our guest, actor and co-creator slash star of the terrific Netflix series, Russian Doll. Here's Natasha Leone. The past, you know, 48, I've been uh, all the way in on the, the, the new season of Twin Peaks, oh, which wow. I had not watched. Lucky and you. So that's really where I've been living. I'm trying to remember what else, what came before there was 48 hours of Twin Peaks. <laughs> Once you're in Twin Peaks, uh, it's hard to remember life outside of it. I've been thinking about doing a, like a quarantine rewatch of Twin Peaks The Return. How's it going for you? How many episodes did you get through in 48 hours? Uh, I think I'm in 11 or 12. Ooh. Wow. Yes. Thank you. It's admirable. <laughs> I did also do a, a third man routine for uh, my birthday, which was not too long ago. And uh, sadly, I also got involved in this Animal Crossing situation. It's been its own type of hellscape that I really regret involving myself in. Uh, But so a lot of time travel and turnips. Do you have like a mansion or like a little beach shack? What's the situation? I feel like you're judging me. No, no, not at all. I'm very curious. Uh, I do have a a great outfit. And man, do I run around that island. Uh, (laughs) And I realize that. I think I think I'm outside more than I actually am. Like I don't realize <laughs> the degenerate I've become because I'm like, listen, I've been running around collecting branches all day. I don't want to hear it. And clearly, I've I've not been collecting branches or breaking stones at all or uh, watering my flowers. In fact, I've been doing none of those things. I've been sitting in a hovel. That's been kind of my scene. What are you guys up to? Oh, every Sunday for over here is movie day. And this week we were really spinning our tires. Like we just, like there was no consensus. And then we got stuck in, in just sort of like Netflix, the Mobius strip of scrolling where it's just leading you nowhere and you have no idea what to watch. And then we defaulted to something that um, we used to watch with my daughter when she was sort of significantly younger and we kind of forgot existed. But we watched um, one of these new era Disney nature documentaries. We watched Dolphin Reef, and I don't know if you guys have seen any of these because you don't have kids. Mm. Pretty fantastic. So like 12 years ago, Disney started this documentary initiative, and they did a bunch, and they weren't very good. But then eight years ago with the movie Bears, um, they like really found their stride. And so it's been like hit after hit after hit. Um, But it really has this like great sort of Disney style storytelling in which they're really, really good at making anthropomorphic characters out of real life bears. And it's very manipulative, but the manipulation is so like super enjoyable. And, you know, I'm not sure that there is a uh, more consistently satisfying entertainment franchise going right now than these like kind of lame, but delightful Disney nature movies. But then the other thing Earlier this year, I fell in love with this movie that I kind of stumbled upon while desperately like searching for something to help me with the thing that I'm that I'm currently writing. I found myself turning on this movie again and was expecting to just kind of like watch the beginning and then found myself staying up way too late. It has a ridiculous title. It's called Seance in a Wet Afternoon. Oh, yeah. I don't think I've seen it. I've seen the Criterion case. It sounds like a ridiculous movie, but it is so good. So it's 1964. It's a British movie. It stars Kim Stanley. 
and then a young like pre-knighthoods or richard attenborough mm. which i feel like i've barely ever seen like young sir richard attenborough and so there's middle-aged couple and they concoct a plan to kidnap a young girl so that they can then tell the police where uh, her whereabouts so that the wife can be proven as a great medium <laughs> and it's fairly bonkers but it's just like a really tight noir thriller but the thing that I really like about it is like one of my like truly formative movies is uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And this movie is like about so many of the same things. You know, it is about sort of codependency and like the lies you concoct to sort of help construct like a long term relationship. And it does it like deeply, but it is also overlaid on top of this really compelling thriller story. I was surprised to like find that like, oh, here I am rewatching this movie I only saw a couple months ago but was totally into it. So seance on a wet afternoon. That's a good recommendation. I will add it to my randomizer. <laughs> I think you should add them to the randomizer and hope it comes up, but you can't mess with the mojo of the randomizer. Right. I felt bad, so I, re I remembered the movies that I'd watched, but this was like three weeks ago, which felt like six years ago. The, mm -hmm. the movies that I watched around that time was I finally watched The Last of Sheila because you told me to. Nice. I watched King of Martin Gardens again and Carnal Knowledge in Altered States again and Pigsty, which I hadn't seen the Pasolini, and Tiger King. So now you have my full quarantine list. I like it. Sorry, I just wanted to, I was like, what did happen? And when I started <laughs> this being like, I'll watch a movie every day, but that felt like six years ago. I watched King of Marvin Gardens not so long before Me quarantine too, because I, um, I did an interview with Bob Rafelson's ex-wife, Toby Rafelson, who was his production designer on his first three movies. And then she did a bunch of like good stuff after that too. Um, and she's super awesome. And that movie is great and it looks great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ellen Burstyn, yeah. Well, I was just going to say that the um, the new additions this week to our randomizer um, are sort of inspired by the last movie we recorded one of these podcasts about, which was Amadeus. And then, like, weirdly, the next time we pressed the randomizer, the movie it suggested that we watch was Unforgiven, which I had never <laughs> seen. And so then I was like, well, you know what? Unforgiven is a movie I would never elect to watch, but it was pretty good. And it makes me think that, you know, maybe Best Picture winners are not the garbage that I believe they are. <laughs> so we added to the randomizer every Best Picture winner that I've never seen. Oh, that's fine. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, I'm not really looking forward to some of them like The Greatest Show on Earth, but, <laughs> um, you know... What the randomizer tells us to watch, I watch. Is there one that you are most skeptical of? I mean, probably that circus one, yeah. Um, yeah. I owned that as a VHS a double box. I don't know what, what it's called. Oh, yeah. a, a, a double VHS. Two tape. Yeah, two tape. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I used to call <laughs> You know, there's a sort of a lot of like 30s adventure movies, which if I'm ever going to watch them now is probably the time. Right. Um, but... We'll see. But I have to say that the thing that I've watched recently that I'm most excited about, like, I knew that Jamie Lee Curtis and Richard Lewis made a sitcom together called Anything But Love. Yes. But I don't know why I decided on Friday night to see if it was available. <laughs> um, but I did. And the way in which it is available is that the the pilot episode is on YouTube with all of the commercials it ran with. <laughs> Oh, that's good. So I highly recommend this video. Um, first of all, the I mean, I haven't seen any of the rest of the show since I was like seven years old. But um, <laughs> and I was just sort of like sitting on the floor playing while my parents watched it. 
the pilot is really well written and What's fun about it is just kind of like seeing Jamie Lee be Jamie Lee and seeing Richard Lewis be Richard Lewis in just their like most ultimate form. <laughs> Uh, the show is clearly just written around them riffing and like them sort of doing the things that they do best. And then the commercials are incredible. It's like the Robert Palmer Simply Irresistible Pepsi commercial where the <laughs> lyrics are changed slightly to be about how good the can looks. <laughs> and there's like an Oral Hershiser Mitsubishi commercial and and so many dancers. Every commercial has like a troupe of 25 <laughs> dancers. And I just like I feel like you know, so many jobs have been lost. So um, <laughs> I highly, highly, highly recommend the Anything But Love pilot on YouTube on with YouTube. commercials. I have a question about Anything But Love because I have not thought about it in many, many years. Does the theme have lyrics or are the lyrics that immediately jumped into my head like lyrics that my dad made up to sing along <laughs> to the instrumental? <laughs> I mean, funny you should say that. I think it's instrumental, but it's hard for me to remember because it is truly the worst opening credits I've ever seen. Um, the, like, as I've said, the show is a sitcom. And right. I know that eventually the point is that they have sex, and but they're friends and co-workers, and then they deal with that. It's anything but love. The opening credits are, it's like that sort of family ties style thing where it's like an, these like watercolored painted over photographs of them and uh -huh. the music is just so trachly and like it, it seems like it should be for like a cancer drama <laughs> anything but love baby anything but hearts that beat like remember when tv was tv what happened it used to be <laughs> such a relief <laughs> Karina, can you set Dune up for us? Yes. Welcome to Dune History Corner. Dune is based on a novel by Frank Herbert, published in 1965, which was then the highest-selling sci-fi novel of all time. Several movie adaptations were attempted before this one, most notably the one that was to be directed by Alexander Jodorowsky. Then Dino De Laurentiis got the rights, and his daughter Raffaella saw Lynch as the Elephant Man and decided he was the right person to direct Dune. The Elephant Man had been a massive surprise hit, grossing $26 million on a $5 million budget, getting nominated for eight Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. It obviously put Lynch in an incredible position of power, but he was still essentially a new filmmaker, and he didn't have a lot of experience or clout. At the time, he was being courted by George Lucas, who was looking for a director for The Return of the Jedi. Lynch weighed both offers, and after going to lunch with George Lucas in Lucas's Ferrari and coming down with a headache <laughs> just talking about Star Wars, Lynch chose Dune. The idea was that they would make at least two or three Dune films and that it would be like a Star Wars franchise for adults. For Lynch, this was a big payday, and he would later lament that he had sold out. He got the check, but he didn't get final cut. He wrote the Dune adaptation himself, at first in collaboration with the two writers who had written The Elephant Man with him. But after six months of collaboration, they didn't produce a filmable draft. It's arguable that there was never a filmable draft of this <laughs> screenplay, but it went into production anyway in Mexico in March 1983. 
Lynch's director's cut of the movie was five hours long. <laughs> he wanted to try to get it down to three, but the De Laurentiis wanted a two-hour film. <laughs> and since Lynch didn't have final cut, he lost a lot of battles in editing. De Laurentiis told him that the only thing that mattered was that the movie's running time be no longer than two hours and 17 minutes, <laughs> because that was the cutoff before movie theaters would have to give you one fewer screening per day. So to get down to that length, whole scenes were cut out of Dune and a bunch of whispered voiceover was added. Lynch subsequently disowned the two-hour and 16-minute version of Dune that was released. He said, quote, Dune wasn't my movie. For some reason, Dune was given a gala premiere at the White House, but reviews were largely negative and it lost a lot of money at the box office. But Lynch remained friendly with Dino De Laurentiis, which was good because he was still under contract to him, and De Laurentiis financed Lynch's next movie, Blue Velvet. Because with Blue Velvet, Lynch, for the first time, had made a totally personal film that was also relatively mainstream, it allowed him to carve out a new lane for himself to keep making movies and TV shows that were uniquely Lynchian. And it allowed Dune to fade into a kind of perfect obscurity. There's a small cult devoted to saying it's actually not bad, and the rest of us are allowed to ignore that it exists, which is what I've been doing for 30 years since Twin Peaks debuted and I first learned about David Lynch which is why I had never seen Dune until this weekend. How about you guys? I saw Dune on opening weekend. I was 10 years old. <laughs> I have not seen it since, but I could not have been more excited to see Dune. I had read the book months before, and it was probably like the first grown-up book I had read, and I loved it so much. Like, I was so into it. This incredible, like, it's really one of the formative, like, reading experiences in my life. I could not have been more excited about doing the movie. I had action figures, which is crazy yeah. to think that they're action figures of this movie. I had, like, a coloring book. Like, I was so geared up. And seeing Dune in the, in the movie theater, um, it was my first experience being incredibly disappointed by the adaptation of a book. And it was also the first experience of that sort of, like, pang of, like, hipsterism where this had been this thing that I really loved that no other like nerd kid was into. And I remember being like both really excited that other people were going to see this really cool thing that I love so much, but also kind of like bummed that other people were going to find out about it. I have this vague memory. It's like a feeling memory of the movie coming out, everybody hating it, and then feeling even worse about my nerdy self. <laughs> so I haven't seen this movie in forever, and I was like genuinely excited to like see it, having seen most, if not all, of the David Lynch movies, revisiting it and expecting it to be uh, not as bad as I remembered it at 10, and I think I was on to something at 10. <laughs> How about you, Natasha? Um, well, in the first place, I mean, this is kind of a heartbreaking movie to talk about, because I mean, obviously David Lynch is so extraordinary, and, and this doom, this attempt to fold time, and the spice, and it just runs around town, devastating giants. I mean, the idea... Spice is life. Yes, you know, and the idea of, you know, both, is it Jodorowsky? I say Jodorowsky because, you know, I'm, I'm from New York, and that's how I say it there, so I'm correct. Um, and, you know, but the idea that he and Lynch both are, like, losing, like, five years of their life into making this thing is... Um, <laughs> It's so sad, you know, and because uh, obviously they're just trying to make something giant. But uh, uh, you know, I've seen I've seen most of his stuff, and I I only remember kind of probably falling asleep to it when I was younger. Um, and even when it started, a beginning is a very delicate time. 
I was so excited. Who's that, Virginia Madsen, yeah? Um, and you know when they, they start and it's kind of on her and I was like, sort of like you Nate, I was like, aha, this is going to be great. And we're gonna be able to see, like look back and see that indeed it was a master at work. The most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. And then she kind of like fades out as she's talking. And then she kind of fades back in and she's like, there's more story I need to tell you because I've got to get this exposition out. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. I mean, that's actually my favorite part of the movie. I know. I was excited then. <laughs> There's like a bunch of those that are kind of epic, you know, like the Dean Stockwells and the Brad Duras and the Max von Sydow's and like there's, you know, from a, a screen grab yes. standpoint, it is hot to try, you know, <laughs> with the uh, sewed up ears and, you know, staying with like the knife through his neck. I mean, there is the, the Brad Dourif shot when he's in the spaceship in the little mirror, that's like the Nick Rogue, um, David Bowie Manifold to Earth shot, yeah. you know, like there's there's definitely a and the sound design is kind of already popping lynches on the case there but then there's just the rest of it and i don't even know what happened like only maybe game of thrones have i ever paid attention to a battle scene in my life um maybe i vaguely remember <laughs> battle scenes in glory for reasons unknown to me i i literally don't know what happened i remember somebody like you know riding a riding a worm uh <laughs> There was like a whole middle section. There was definitely a middle section. Yes. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there was also, there was a last third. Was there? Fully the last third of the movie plays like a previously. <laughs> They're cutting from scene to scene to scene to scene with like big idea. They're introducing characters, including some prophesied sister. It's madness. The tremendous power of the water of life caused the premature birth of Jessica's daughter, Alia. Alia was born with all the knowledge and powers of a reverend mother. Oh, that I loved. Alia. Oh, she was great. That that was the best the best part of the movie. As a fetus as a yeah. and as a as a child. Yeah. She she was great. Stole the show. You know, I was so excited in the beginning, frankly, when Virginia Madsen pops up and she's fading in and out for no reason. And she is giving us the most intense bit of information, like the things that you learn about this world and the things that you're asked to absorb. Like I was actually kind of encouraged because first of all, it was fairly like Lynchian. Like it is so strange. It's so weird that she's dropping in and out. It's like the whole thing is so odd. And I was like, well, at least they're getting the exposition out of the way. Like maybe he's just front loaded it. So now we'll understand it. And then there'll be like a story. <laughs> Little did I know that the exposition would never ever stop. It was like space casino. The spacing guild and its navigators who the spice has mutated over 4,000 years use the orange spice gas, which gives them the ability to fold space. Um, so I rewatched Blue Velvet for the first time um, since, you know, I saw it in college or something like that. And um, it was genuinely kind of exciting to see the movies back to back in such a weird way. And like, what a, honestly, like I was going to say, what a strange like career of mid eighties, David Lynch, but what a strange life that guy is leading that he is in Mexico city, you know, uh, directing this movie. Like you're right about it being kind of heartbreaking. Like 
think of all the fights that he had to had to do. Like think of all the times when he must have felt both so in over his head as he's like trying to rewrite yet another <laughs> piece of voiceover. Then like a couple years later, like he's, he's got Dean Stockwell back. He's got Brad Dorff back. He's got Kyle McLaughlin back. And they're in Lumberton. It's such a strange I term. really recommend this book that came out a couple of years ago called Room to Dream, which alternates um, a historian sort of reportage on David Lynch with these passages written by Lynch himself. It is true that like the the actual sort of TikTok of the facts of the historian is, you know, it's it's like what you usually go to a biography for. And then the but the Lynchian stuff is where all the good anecdotes are. It's like Lynch being like, and then we showed Dune at the White House. <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff about how he just is like chronically unfaithful to women and uh. like how that sort of informs his work. I didn't realize that about him being unfaithful and unbound, you know, because you grow up, you get old. And what do you discover? Fellini with Giulietta Messini. I mean, Giulietta Messina and, um, you know, uh, Cassavetes with Jenna Rollins. And, you know, none of these guys are what you want them to be, are they? Prior to watching the movie, um, I watched an interview uh, with David Lynch on, like, a promotional interview about Dune, talking about um, himself uh, as having this kind of kind of classic movie progression, which is he does a razor head and a razor head gets him noticed. And then he like makes this big leap and he does the elephant man. And then the elephant man gets him noticed and he's, you know, then in charge of a franchise film. And it's really kind of incredible to think of, of that. This is David Lynch and he, and, you know, he doesn't quite know what his career has in store yet and how much better the career post franchise uh, films is going to be in every level. You know, besides seeing David Lynch, you know, on screen, which he definitely pops up, there are things that are like, you know, kind of excitingly Lynchian visually that happens. Um, But you can also just kind of see like in the world of like Lynchian ideas, like why this is a better fit for him theoretically than like Return of the Jedi. like. Well, sure. I mean, just like in the idea, you know, that these sci-fi ideas are sort of more attuned with his surrealism and his interest in, interest in dream logic and all of that. But, but I mean, I think the big problem with Dune is that he doesn't care about the content of the movie. He doesn't care about the actual story at all. <laughs> um, he, you know, and so there is this sort of brilliant visual stuff. And, you know, there's so much. I mean, it's interesting that Natasha's watching The Return right now because there is so much that just in the way the scenes are constructed and just the, the weird shit going on that reminded me of the return. But with the return, like, you know, you see David Bowie as a teapot and you want to <laughs> invest in that. You know, you want to put the pieces together of how that fits in with this Laura Palmer story. And with Dune, it's like Lynch obviously like doesn't really care about tapping into this <laughs> Dune mythology. Um you know, but he but he does like like really get a kick out of like the repetition of like having Kyle McLaughlin say worms are life or spices life, you know, sp- like over <laughs> and over again. And, you know, having it just sort of like circle back to kind of the same t- so- sorts of things. And and the thing of Virginia Madsen, like fading sort of in and out of reality is, you know, there. These things, these isolated things are, yeah, totally great for screen grabs, great for GIFs. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, you know, this is like the ideal movie for being projected on the wall of a bar in like the Lower East Side. And yes. it doesn't really function as a movie. Although one wonders, I mean, maybe this is why he sort of had any interest in television ultimately of like if he just couldn't follow that thread at that 
you know, time count, like, you know, that Yarowski, that giant book that he has yeah. is also like, I guess he gets kicked out of the studios all saying like, we, we can't finance this when he walks in with that giant, you know, gorgeous um, book of, um, uh, yeah. you know, his storyboards. And it's because they're like, well, how long is the movie? He's like, uh, how long <laughs> is, is a movie? movie? How long does it take to explain the nature of time and space and spirituality and a prophet? If we're going to change minds, how can we tell you the length of something? Like, one wonders sort of if, I mean, I guess this is why there are all those sort of, you know, those, uh, you know, pseudo director cuts that I guess he's not interested in either. But maybe there is some sort of five hour version where he was like, I was giving you the information. It was going to lead to B to C, but they just (laughs) compressed it all in such a way that all we were left with was the Spice's life. Spice's life. I don't know. There really was an astounding amount of voiceover. Like in the beginning, I'm like, oh, there's a voiceover in this movie because it's a world where telepathy exists. And so everyone's reading everybody's mind. But after a while, like they're literally just giving you like minor character insights, you know, like when a guy just is like, (laughs) I'm sad about this thing. When I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of an interesting tactic. And the problem with it is that, you know, Lynch doesn't actually seem to care about any of these characters' inner lives because what are their inner lives? You know, <laughs> this, all they're thinking about is that Spice's life. Um, after I watched the movie, um, I read that, you know, Lynch didn't choose to put that voiceover yeah. in. It was just like a way of trying to compress his five hour cut into this two hour cut. And that he's that's one of the things that he's most like, I want to take my name off this movie because I don't stand by this voiceover choice. <laughs> and so it, then it's just like I just feel like everything that I like feel like I can sort of touch as being like a David Lynch you know, signature move in this movie, it ends up evaporating yeah. because it either is not something he chose to do or it just like doesn't matter. It's very funny that the idea of uh, that every character is telepathic is almost like, it's almost an <laughs> SNL bit or something. Like, just, I mean, the one thing we have in this life is that people can't hear each other's thoughts, you right. know? So, but it really removes any sort of pretext of subtext altogether because they're just running around. The, when everybody's telepathic, what does it mean to be telepathic anymore? And what is voiceover in the realm of just a sea of telepathic characters and we can hear everything they're thinking? It's, so weird. it's funny because like when I watched Jodorowsky's Dune you know, four or five years ago or whatever, I remember feeling like, oh, didn't we miss out? Boy, wouldn't it be interesting to see, you know, like a visionary, like kind of crackpot director tackle this material. And I didn't kind of realize that that's actually what we had. He takes some like, you know, pretty big swings in terms of like design, like the body horror stuff is genuinely gross and like compelling. And then like he does all that stuff that, you know, he really does really, he does a lot, you know, throughout his career. But he has those sequences where it's all this kind of like, both you know inspired by both like silent movie and kind of like pre-cinematic lantern show stuff like there's a lot of like journey to the moon in this in a fun way you know all those weird dissolves between like when freaking kyle mclaughlin is talking about the two moons and all the nonsense where are my feelings i feel for no one the second moon all of that was was very Lynchian and visually arresting. But it is crazy that like even as like he succumbs to doing the voiceover and, and even just as like a, an editing room tool to make sense of this nonsensical stuff, it's amazing how it still doesn't make any sense. I was vaguely following that like this guy 
son of the das boot guy and there's like uh there's somewhere else and now he's got to like kill the worm or like own the worm <laughs> or something Sounds and he's like the prophet they're gonna drink this kind of lsd yeah. juice and then they're gonna be like spiritual giants who can kind of they're a small army, but they'll take down the big bad army because they've got LSD juice. And so that lets them ride the worm. You know, then like mission accomplished. He does it. Kills Sting. Uh, you know, happy birthday, happily ever after. Like that was kind of, you know, and like little sister turns out okay. Um, little sister. There was a real Jason and the Argonauts quality to it. Yeah. Which is like not right. my favorite genre either. Um, but just to say, it didn't really seem like that different than, oh, now we're like fighting one of these weird old dinosaurs that they make or whatever. <laughs> um, that was the middle section I'm referencing where I kind of checked out a little. I'm always interested in the way that like a lot of those guys that came up in the seventies, like, I mean, even like John Waters, how kind of informed and obsessed they are by kind of like late night TV and the kind of like the, the Jason and the Argonauts kind of creature feature. And so it's kind of fun to see some of those elements like sneaking into this big budget thing. But there were times where I could not tell if some of the like janky special effects were like a choice or, or a limitation, you know, like it's just this mix of like lynching visuals uh, mixed in with just like terrible, terrible, terrible. Oh, that guy's riding on top of a worm, I guess stuff. But even as like action science fiction nonsense, it doesn't work at all. It's really. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a thing. Like it only doesn't work like if you're expecting it to be a movie. If you, if you need it to be a, if you need it to be a movie, then it doesn't work. But if you just like put I can imagine just like putting on a scene and being like, you know, oh, I really sure. liked it when that army came in and they were all wearing sleeping bags. <laughs> you know, let me just like watch that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like there's so many isolated kind of good ideas and goofy ideas and brilliant imagery. But it's just like the tying together of one scene to the next and expecting no. causal reality. Those are two very different things, though, because it really is successful at the first. Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to give Lynch a win, I think. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I have to say I was like, I also was sort of following, you know, they're on a journey. He's a prophet. Spice is life. But, you know, I was extremely surprised when it ended. Yes. I didn't feel like they'd come to a conclusion. I agree with that because I think in my mind it was going to be like six hours because I was just sort of like preparing myself or something. I was like, Fred, I got to watch this movie. I'm going to be going to be like six hours or something. And then all of a sudden it was over and I was like, where did that come from? It, it always felt everything felt kind of compressed and like everything was very. But like for a while, like I'm following it, I'm moving along. And then suddenly she's drinking the milk of life. And then suddenly it's she has raining. a premature baby and the baby is growing and advanced. Suddenly you've never seen this sister before. And there she is. For, now she's bleeding. Now she's <laughs> talking to Sting. Like I have no idea what's happening. If given the choice that like I could, you know, clear my palate in some way in six months from now, someone could say, hey, here's the five hour version that Lynch wanted to do. I feel like I'd watch it. I feel like there's there might be a good movie in there. Somewhere. Well, because it's interesting. They so clearly like a masterful technician with Elephant Man. And then, you know, Blue Velvet is I mean, it's also you know part of what this movie suffers from. And I guess this genre sometimes does altogether is, you know, self-seriousness like yeah. It's it's sort of, you know, by necessity, humorless in a way that is actually distracting because then you've got to laugh at the absurdity as uh, as if it's a bad thing. You know, it almost like robs Lynch of his ability to be also like a funny eccentric who's like a very 
spiritual out there guy. Um, like when you, you know, mentioned um, John Waters or whatever, it's just, they're like kind of coming from this era of just big ideas kind of done their own way. And there's something about this genre that becomes its own like limitation of like this rush to do serious bits about, you know, that are inherently gibberish, which is, I'd see the appeal to a surrealist, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, boy, does it go sideways. When surrealism meets commerce, I guess, is uh, inevitably uh, problematic. It's this weird uncanny valley where like things that are almost working don't work. And the things that are you know, almost comically off aren't actually funny. Like he probably just had like too much money on his hands. Like what movie could he have made? you know, with two thirds of the budget, I would probably be so much more enjoyable with all the weird, like practical effects and all the bad puppets and stuff. Which must have been so seductive. The idea of, uh, you know, being given that pile of cash as a kid to kind of like make all the creatures you want and like about the most like spiritually next level. Oh my God, this book is so mind bending. It's like, it must have felt like such a prize to kind of an opportunity to do like all of the things from like within his subconscious realize, you know? And God, it really, it's, it's, it's breaking my heart again. So was this a good movie to be watching right now? Karina, what do you think? Well, I probably wouldn't watch it any other time, (laughs) to be honest. So, um, I, it did make me wish I could be in a public place where it would be projected with the sound off. So I would say it's it wasn't the best movie to watch right now because it just made me think about how the only way I can watch movies right now is on the couch. <laughs> yeah, it was a rough couch watch. This is uh, not a good movie. You yeah. know, like if you're like a David Lynch completist, like go ahead. Like I'm sure that like there's good like sci-fi stuff in there somewhere. And I feel like, you know, there's the Denny Villeneuve version, which I think is going to be two movies. So like he'll probably get his five hours out of that if you're into that sort of thing. You know, don't ruin whatever might be good about this story uh, with this version. How about you, Natasha? You know, for me, I would say yes. Like my lost weekend of rewatching Yadorowski's Dune, watching The Return, which had a lot of white people, is just something I'm going to say in a way I found distracting, but was otherwise, you know, really, really a good time. Watching this Dune, I agree that it sort of, when else was this going to happen? And sort of, I'm, I'm so glad it did. And I think I'm also, you know, my wrapping up the tail end of, of uh, writing my show. And there was something very sort of uplifting about like the idea, you know, that it's like you just make things to make them and you can just keep making them. And, you know, I'm picturing like Lynch under stress and that he probably kept it very calm, cool and collected. You know what I mean? He's probably very cool under stress. So I felt like, yeah, I felt very, you know, warm towards him in watching it right now. I'm just like picturing him as a young person. Like it's so great, the idea that he has this, like you were saying, like this great second act that follows what he thinks is going to be the big event of his career, that this just becomes like a part of his story. So yeah, I felt like uh, I would recommend watching it, but watching it as a sort of curiosity folded into the, the documentary making of Don Quixote, like those kinds of right. that genre of cinema. Like I always think that's sort of the Heaven's Gate sort of curiosity. Although I love Heaven's Gate. Are we ready for a game? By the way, I'm definitely going to fail the quiz. I always fail these quizzes. Uh, I don't, this isn't really a pass fail one. We're going to play a game called Lynch or Not Lynch. 
You are going to hear a quote, and you have to tell us if this is a real quote from David Lynch talking about Dune <laughs> or not. Oh, my God, this is funny. To help us play, I am going to call a special guest. So one second. I hope it's David Lynch. I hope it's the Messiah himself, Paul, whatever. Well, guys, we're here with our special guest. It's David Lynch. <sighs> we're so sorry about what we said about your film, sir. David Lynch. David, are you here? Testing, testing, <laughs> testing, Sounds testing. Like oh, thank you. So, thank you so much for joining us on It's the Pictures That Got Small to help us play Lynch or Not Lynch. Thank you for having me, Karina. And may I say, I'm a big fan of the podcasting <laughs> genre in general. Well, great. We, we feel so honored to have you here. And I know you have in front of you some statements that you've made and some other people have made. And why don't we just get started? Number one. It's a pretty good lunch. No one is responsible for my mistakes but me. I that's that. I feel, why wouldn't that be Lynch? That feels like that, a guy is ready to. Yeah, that's got to be Lynch. He's not going to blame Rafaela de Laurentiis. That sounds yeah. like Lynch to me. I say yes. You guys, I'm sorry, but you're incorrect. No. Really? Jeez. You're in, incorrect. That one is not David Lynch. That is Joel Schumacher <laughs> talking about Batman and Robin. <laughs> Number two. I've blacked out the experience of sitting through the film, and I didn't read any of the reviews when it opened. What do you guys think? I say yes. I feel like I feel like we just need to put this into the universe. This is what I would like yes. to, for him to yes. experience. So let's say yes. Correct. That was David Lynch talking about oh, Dune. Yeah. That makes me feel better, Natasha. Oh, still breaks my heart. Number three. When you don't have final cut, total creative freedom, you stand to die the death. <laughs> die the death. And died I did. Lynch. He repeated it. So that feels like that's straight out of the person who wrote It's the Spice. That's you, sir. I'm gonna, I bet it's no because the last one is yes, but still I'm going to go with yes. You die. You die the death. Correct. He did die the death. All right, David, number four. It wouldn't be fair to say it was a total nightmare, but it was maybe 75% a nightmare. I, yes. You think yes? I feel like when David Lynch, I feel like he is a more centered man than that. Like, I feel like he finds his way to the other side to find peace with things. I, I feel like that's a little too negative for Lynch, but that's just me. Mm. Plus, he would Smart. like it. I feel like he enjoys a good nightmare. Smart. He I might not like, use the word nightmare that, you know, exactly. casually. Let's say no. Mm -hmm. Incorrect. That was David Lynch talking about Dan. Shit. <laughs> ah, we went too deep. Ah. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> well, David, what's the next one? I've never even really liked science fiction. I like elements of it. But it needs to be combined with other genres. <laughs> First of all, this is funny. What do you think, Natasha? Leave it ah, This sounds like no. something Ryan Johnson would say. If only we could ask him. It seems like a little banal thing. It's like, you know, I'm going to say no, but I'm going to regret it. I regret everything I've ever said. So I also regret this. Add it to the pile. Incorrect. It was ah. David Lynch. I'll talk to the great Mr. Lynch. All right. If I had the time and a sledgehammer... I would track down every copy and smash it. I think that's a lame stretch. 
not Lynch or Stretch. It is David Fincher talking about oh, Alien man. 3. Oh! <laughs> well, guess what, guys? What? Nate and Natasha, you won the game. Oh, fantastic. Oh, what a relief. I knew you could do it, Natasha. I believed in you the whole time. I knew it was you. It was you, Nate. <laughs> Before we let you go, Natasha, can you uh, shout out a favorite uh, indie movie theater, favorite film series or whatever that you are particularly missing right now? This is a, a knee jerk always for me. It's immediately the film forum. I absolutely love that place. You know, I dropped out of Tish and went to the film forum. So uh, it's uh, my home and my everything. And I just love that place. I cannot wait for it to reopen. And I can't wait to be uh, back there seeing whatever it is that they're up to. I was also noticing that the Film Forum uh, website is actually having like curated rentals. You know, they'll have like 10 movies available at a time. Oh, really? Um, that you can, yeah, that you can stream directly from the Film Forum, which is pretty That's cool. That's great. I will have to check that out. I know that a lot of these theaters are, are kind of streaming their new releases through this Kino um, streaming service and then like I was going to watch this movie that was at BAM and then I like got the dates wrong and I messed it all up so I have to be better at, at understanding what is available to me. Now this has typically been the part of the show when we turn to you to raise money to support independent cinemas and with your help the Art House America fundraiser has raised more than $800,000. But they are now shifting out of fundraising mode and into fund distribution mode, and they are not accepting donations at this time. And so Karina and I are going to be putting our heads together to see if there's another way for us to use the show to help keep those places we love alive. You can follow their website for updates. You can find a link in our show notes and on our website, smallpictureshow.com. And if you ever want to drop us a line... Email us at smallpictureshow at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Memory Palace. She is at Karina Longworth. You should subscribe to both of our other podcasts. Mine is called The Memory Palace. It comes out every couple of weeks. Hers is You Must Remember This, and she just launched a fantastic new season. And now let's find out what we're going to be watching with next week's guest, Rachel Chavkin. Tony Award-winning director of Broadway's Town. Hey, Nate and Karina. This is Rachel Chapkin, director. I have been wanting forever to watch this crazy Czech film that I have heard about that's directed by a lady called Daisies. And that's what we're going to watch next week. So track down Daisies, a cult classic from swinging Czechoslovakia. We will meet back here next week. 